Hi guys, this is one of my more favorite modules in this course, so I hope you enjoy it. The title is based on the readings I gave last semester, uh, most of which were about animals. But for this sem, I only retained the reading about cats by David Wood, and the new ones are Hwasil's The Secret Lives of Fungi, and a documentary on YouTube about living bridges in a region in Northeast India. All three resources highlight a particular way of relating to non-human beings in the world. So I want you to, to, to just pick one from the three and read or watch them in relation to the required reading of David Abrams. How do they coincide or not with the points raised by Abrams? But also, how is our relationship with non-human beings related to aesthetic experience? Why are we having this module in the first place? How is giving attention to them, to non-human beings, connected to the attention we give to artworks? And that is my cue to start introducing our reading for this week because it somewhat touches on those things I mentioned. Uh, so we have Chapter 1, The Ecology of Magic in David Abrams' The Spell of the Sensuous. And then you have a choice between two readings. You can read John Berger's Why Look at Animals or David Wood's If a Cat Could Talk. And I have to admit, as someone who likes animals, these are my two favorite readings uh, in the entire course. Uh, so the Woods article is about cats, and I hope you guys like cats. If you don't, maybe you can read the other essay uh, by John Berger, uh, which is actually also very good. So um, chapter 2 of David Abrams is just supplemental reading if you want to go in-depth, but it's not really required. So I won't discuss um, why look at animals and a cat could talk, uh, if a cat could talk, maybe later on in the forums, but not here in this podcast because I want to hear from you first on how you would connect either of those two readings with uh, David Abrams and hopefully you can share your insights with the rest of the class in the forums Before we talk about Abrams, uh, we need to understand that he is coming from a phenomenological standpoint So he borrows a lot from the ideas and concepts of Edmund Husserl and Maurice Merleau-Ponty so phenomenology, as a philosophical system, focuses on the lived immediate world as experienced by our senses. So it takes as its primary consideration this perceived world and not the world that had already been abstracted by our knowledge systems. So in other words, if you live, for example, in a seaside community, you have this primary experience of the sea of its movement, of maybe how it behaves during the summer, of how the wind, the movement of the wind changes during the rainy seasons. And these perceptions of the landscape, which you experience with your body, comes before 
any scientific knowledge you may have about it. So it comes before your knowledge from school of the movement of water currents or before your ability to name and identify different kinds of animal species living in the coast. And this is related to an important concept uh, Husserl called the life world. So from page 40 of the Abrams book, uh, to quote, the life world is the world that we count on without necessarily paying it much attention. The world of the clouds overhead and the ground underfoot, of getting out of bed and preparing food and turning on the tap for water, end quote. So it's this world that is just there when you wake up. It's what you immediately perceive and in many ways take for granted. For Abrams, Every society and culture have particular life worlds and have distinct ways of perceiving and being in the world. And it's also interesting that he extends this notion of life world to include non-human beings. Animals, for instance, uh, according to Abrams, also have life worlds of their own that are diverse and beyond our perception and comprehension. Another important concept from phenomenology that is relevant to Abrams is the idea that we enter into an intersubjective awareness of the world through our bodies. So we have sensing bodies uh, through which we interact with and become aware of other subjectivities. It is through the body that I can see, feel, touch, taste, and be aware of the things in the world. At the same time, it is also as a body that I am perceived by other beings in the world. So it is the body that can sense and is sensed by others. I look at a cat and the cat looks at me. In other words, it is the body that allows us to be in a relationship with other things in the world. And it is Merleau-Ponty that really highlights this idea of the self not as a disembodied ghost or consciousness or phantom inside a shell, inside a body, but existing, us existing through the corporeal reality of our flesh. So now we go to the reading itself. David Abrams is an ecologist and philosopher who is said to be um, an academic outsider in the West. Uh, in chapter 1 of his book, The Spell of the Sensuous, he questions the ways in which people from industrialized societies relate to the world. He argues, instead, for an awareness of the world as an animated force. Uh, he talks, for instance, about the role of the healer or a shaman in certain rural villages in Asia. Uh, he explicitly mentions, I think, Indonesia and Nepal. Uh, and he says that the shaman serves as a mediator between the human and non-human communities. Which is to say that the societies he has visited, those he has mentioned, um, has a particular awareness of a larger ecological field. And the mediators are there to maintain a reciprocal relationship between the human and non-human domain. 
So the world is not something from which you just take things, but rather there is an interconnectedness, a kind of mutual relationship between the world and us. With Abrams juxtaposing indigenous cultures and industrialized societies, I was reminded of a concept from Martin Heidegger called Standing Reserve. So Heidegger argues that in modern society, we frame the world as a standing reserve, which means that nature is an out there. It is separate from us that we see as something that we can manipulate at will in order to extract resources for our needs. And at risk of oversimplifying Heidegger, I would say that it, in this conception of the standing reserve, the world is regarded as passive and inert, while we, humans, are active agents imposing our will upon it. And this is not just a matter of perception or representation, according to Heidegger. It's, all, it's not just how we see nature. But more importantly, um, that kind of relationship, that kind of attitude towards nature is concretized in how we have existing technologies and systems in place that actively and sometimes very violently shapes and manipulates nature. We literally move mountains and rivers to supply us of our needs. So for Heidegger, a river, for example, is not something that we see as an active force that we have to contend with. We do not anymore have any particular sensitivity to its movements and behaviors, or we do not even recognize it as an integral part of the natural ecosystem in place. Uh, instead, we see it as either a potential water supply source, if you can construct a dam, or maybe it's part, merely part of the landscape. It's something you pass by over the bridge you have constructed over it. Uh, in the same way, you, we don't think anymore of a chicken as another sentient being with its particular life world. Instead, it is livestock. It is dinner. Um, its body had been engineered to provide us with larger drumsticks, larger fried chicken drumsticks. And we do those things on a regular basis on a large scale, regardless of the effects of the suffering it induces on the animals themselves. In parallel to Heidegger, Abrams argues that our view of nature has become rather simplified and impoverished. When we are not trying to encroach upon nature, it is something that we keep out with the use of our technologies. He mentions how we see nature as the outside that we keep out with our air conditioning or something we just pass by while we are in our vehicles. And when we do encounter non-human elements or beings, so let's say when we encounter animals in a zoo, the encounter is sanitized. So for Abrams, indigenous cultures that recognize the world as an animate force also recognize that we are part of it. It is something that envelops us. Uh, and if you think about it, we are not really uh, self-contained beings despite our attempts to push out nature or to see nature as something exterior to us. 
there is a certain porousness between our bodies and the world. So the food we eat is still, it mostly still comes from the land. Uh, we breathe in oxygen from our surroundings. We have bacteria and fungi in our gut that are beneficial for our digestion. And the minerals in our bones, for instance, were probably inside another animal millions of years ago. And maybe millions of years from now, it will probably be part of some other object in the world. I would just like to mention that David Abrams has been criticized for generalizing the experience of indigenous cultures uh, by glossing over the differences in their worldviews in order to support his arguments. So in the description, I am going to try to give you a link um, to one of those articles that critique Abrams. Uh, and in that article, for instance, they argue that Abrams could have used phenomenology to further understand and highlight cross-cultural differences because in phenomenology you recognize that we approach the world from different and varied perspectives so this is an endeavor that other thinkers have more success successfully navigated uh, than abrams but there are signs that he is aware of the differences and nuances of the worldviews that he mentions uh, although he doesn't really highlight that in his book. So critics argued that he missed out on further strengthening his arguments by making that mistake. Nevertheless, Abrams presents engaging, if not poetic, arguments for rethinking our relations with the world. And these are points that we can take note of as we reflect on how we relate with non-human beings and things in nature. To end this podcast, I want you to ponder on how we sense and how we are sensed through our bodies. In one of the readings, there is mention made of us staring at an animal, the other, and of it staring in return. In this interaction, we become aware of them, but also we become aware that they are aware of us. So there is mutual recognition, but also a mutual strangeness. And some of you might ask, well, what does this have to do with art? And to answer that, it might be good to go back to our last module and try to remember Bircher's white birth.